Are you a collector or a hoarder? All this and more on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Audio snout, it's the Pigus. Virtually amazing monsters. And horde of the things. All this and more coming up on this week's show. Up to date news for out of date tech. Hello, chaps. I hope you've had a good week. Um, we're going to start off this week with a correction to last week's show, uh, a point of clarification that was uh, posted. Uh, Chris bonus information. Let's call it bonus information. Bonus information, courtesy of Moy Vor over on the <laughs> subreddit. Um, he says, hi, Neil. In the latest episode, you brought up the Evercade and you stated that you were disappointed that the Evercade does not play arcade games, only console games. This was true initially of the Evercade as there were still licensing discussions going on. But from late last year, they've started to release a range of arcade cartridges. Um, so I think these are identified by a different color. I think there might be the purple carts or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Uh, and they include the Technos Arcade Collection 1, Data East, uh, Gaelco, Atari, Jalico, Gaelco Arcade 2, Irim, and Toplan Arcade Collections. Um and uh, Moivor goes on to say, unfortunately, Double Dragon 1 is not the Technos Arcade, not on the Technos Arcade car. It's still the NES version on that other car. Due to the amount of slowdown the game has on the real cab and thus in emulation. Evercade has had a discussion about this specifically on one of the podcasts they did. So there you go. Arcade games are emulated on the Evercade. Uh, we stand corrected, uh, but Double Dragon 1 still remains the NES version. Chris is desperate to, to say something here. He's I am, I up. am, because it, it, that was 100% my fault. So I researched that story, and Neil had offline um, said something in our chat about the fact that it might play arcade games. So I said, no, no, I'm pretty sure it didn't. I did research, <laughs> and I, from everything I found, it said that it played console games. And yeah, it was as of, I think, November last year that they added the arcade. Right, so still um, pretty support. recent. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Double Dragon, One, <laughs> Double Dragon One's still an interesting one. So they say it's not included because of the slowdown. And that's where you come to the the big question with these things is how did you break the authenticity? Because mm. there are switches in emulation where you can stop that slowdown in Double Dragon and it becomes a slightly different and, you know, even more playable game. It's a great experience. But it's not an authentic experience because you're not getting the original slowdown. So do you or don't you? Personally, I think it's always nice to have the option to do it. Mm. Um, I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, um, no, I agree. I, I know that some games have sprite flicker where they've gone a little bit beyond what the machine could probably do. So removing the sprite flicker, if you won't remove the slowdown, would you remove the sprite flicker? I think I would remove the sprite flicker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this does make the Evercade even more tempting, though, I must say. Now that I know this. It does. Yeah. It does. Nice little unit. So, Chris, what have you been up to this week? Um, well, there's lots I could tell, but the main thing I, I do want to talk about is I watched a um, a recording of a live stream by uh, a group of YouTubers that call themselves the Retro Five. And so they're all – what I like about this is they're all sub-2,000 um, sub, uh, subscription channels. In fact, most of them are hovering around the 1,000 sub mark. Uh, so this is Retro Bait, Retro Chef, Ginger Hippie Gaming, Level 42, Nerdy Geezer and Sega Zombie, really relaxed guys. And they, they get together, I think it's once a month, to do this live stream. I obviously watch the recording because of the time difference because they're all UK-based. But keeping in mind these are relatively small channels, they had Dominic Diamond on from Games Master. So I just want to say, A, you know, well done to those guys, but B, just 
Dominic, you're a star. Just, you know, mixing it in with the lads. And it is one of the most relaxed chats you'll ever watch. Just, yeah, there's some colourful language and they're just laying it all out there. It's not all about games. It's all about all sorts of things and a really great chat. So, yeah, it was cool. Well, it's funny you should mention him. I have an interview <laughs> with him on Friday of this week, which I'm very much looking forward to. So uh, I'll go and check out um, that channel. What's the channel name again? Um, well, so the, it was actually on the live stream was hosted by Retro Chef. So yeah, look up Retro that. Chef. Okay, yeah. so I'll, uh, I'll go and check out that channel because that will be good research before I uh, do my retro tea break with him. Uh, Dominic actually reached out to me. I did ask him a few years ago for an interview uh, and he kindly replied and said he was he was sort of all interviewed out. I think he'd been on the media campaign and that was it. He was, he was uh, closing the door on that. And then he emailed me a few weeks back and just said, does the offer still stand? Could we do an interview? Um, and I think it's to do with, uh, obviously he has something to promote. That's why people like to do interviews most of the time. And I think it's to do with his newspaper column. He's back as a games journalist uh, in a UK newspaper. Um, so he wants to shout about that a little bit as well, which is great. Fantastic. We'll get a, get a view on that side of things as well. Yeah. Hmm. How about you, Dave? What have you been up to? I've been in computer hell with my XP build that I've been talking about the past couple of times. Mm. It was going so well. I was delighted with it. It was all sorted. And then I connected up to a CRT and no video. So oh. problems with VGA and DVI. But I did get it solved late last night. So I now have it all sorted out. I've got a, I have a very complicated set of five PCs sharing a single 21-inch CRT, keyboard, mouse, speakers, MT32Pi, and I've been going through them all to get them all just right. Um, it turns out I like building computers almost <laughs> probably more than playing the games on them. Um, so I've been doing lots of that. Um, but there was something else I've been thinking about since last week. Um, last week, there was two sort of cat-based Easter eggs in the video. <laughs> and I wanted to make sure video viewers noticed and to let people know that we do le these little things. So first of all, on the screen behind Chris, he had his cat, the Stitch, was it? Stitch? Yeah, Stitch. Yeah, the thin stitch. one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, on, on his screen where he's now got a joystick and uh, a picture of, um, I think, his current setup. The um, finished game for Rich. That's what that is. But anyway. Is it? Oh, the oh, finished yes, game. Well done. Game. Well done. He'll, yes. he'll, he will be delighted. It's not very um, good. Yeah. <laughs> he'll, he'll be delighted. Just that you made it for him, he'll be delighted. Yeah. Um, but also, producer Duncan added a little clip uh, that came from the warm-up uh, to the end as a post-credit scene with Johnny getting some treats. So will there be more visual Easter eggs? Keep your eyes peeled. <laughs> Let's go into our first story, shall we? Our first story this week was shared by none other than the legend that is DJ Hoffman. Thank you, Hoffman, for contributing. It's all about the Gravis Ultrasound, or the GUS, the GUS. It was a sound card for PC owners released in 1992. And if you thought you were special by owning an actual genuine creative Sound Blaster card and not a cheap clone, then your Ultrasound-owning friends looked down on you. Well, only a little bit. They weren't that much more expensive than Creatives cards, but they were a bit special and they were made in, it was a red PCB that they made these cards in, which really made them stand out. But more importantly, they were a lot cheaper than the professional cards that were aimed at musicians. And that's what this thing was really catered for. It was a 16-bit, 44.1 kilohertz stereo sound card and had RAM on board into which you could store instrument patches uh, on something that they marketed as the wavetable. So if you're a musician using a MIDI-capable instrument, you could load up a bunch of realistic-sounding instruments into the card and use them for playback. And those who owned them sung their praises. 
which um, also had native support, these devices, for the Sound Blaster. So it was Sound Blaster compatible technically, but it did this through a memory resident layer. Uh, it was emulation software that would take up a bit of memory and remember how crucial memory was back in those days. Every every byte counted. And it was a bit clunky. So um, that certainly wasn't its best feature. But if your game supported the ultrasound natively, you were getting some of the best audio out there on the PC on a consumer budget that you could get. Now, this reputation has given the card a little bit of a cult following with the original owners. And for those of us who um, only ever saw it as an install option uh, appear on the screen when we were choosing our sound card or as an advert in our magazine, it's it's only really raised its desirability because it's one of those things like the Roland MT32 that many of us lusted after, couldn't afford and never got to experience. Well, now we do have a chance to experience it. Thanks to... Um, this new piece of hardware, which is called the Pigus. That's capital P, lowercase i, and then capital G-U-S. So, <laughs> so that was Dave, not me, not Chris, <laughs> and not a real pig. It was it was quite a convincing uh, impression. <laughs> now, um, as you can guess from the name, the pie in Pigus is, of course, a Raspberry Pi. This project is uh, the work of Ian Scott, a.k.a. Polpo, over on the Vogons forum, where he's documented the project. And uh, there'll be a link in the show notes if you want to read up on it. So what he's created is a PCB that slots into the ISA slot, an 8-bit ISA slot on your old PC. And then from there comes a ribbon cable that goes all the way back to your Pi. It has to be a Pi 3 or greater to have enough power to do this. Uh, and that ribbon cable plugs onto the GPIO pins of the Pi, and the Pi then emulates the ultrasound. The software it's running is the same Circle, it's called Circle Bare Metal Environment that's used for the Pi MT32 project. So uh, as we know, if it's anything like that project, it will boot up very quickly, uh, probably quicker than your machine manages to post. So it's all <laughs> detected properly and you can um, you can initialize it in DOS and use it in your game seamlessly. Uh, Dave, you were pointing at something there. What was that? That was the MT32 Pi. Oh, okay. You've got one there next to you. Yeah. yeah. So this project is not complete, but it is complete enough that Ian's thrown up some demos on Twitter that you can see running again, hopefully links in the show notes if you'd like to see them. So let, let's just talk about the um, the ultrasound in general, starting with you, Dave. Did you have one or did you know anyone that had a Gravis ultrasound? No, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen one in person. Um, I do remember the lovely red card and people who weren't in the, the kind of uh, into PCs in the 90s may not realize that everything was green. Everything was a green PCB, so a red card was was unique. So I don't think I saw any PCBs in, t in red until I saw the, the Gus. Um, and I think the red PCB is a Canadian thing because ATI also did it, and they're a Canadian company, so I wonder if that's why it was. Um, but back then, I was scraping around to get an Adlib, comp Adlib compatible and then a Sound Blaster compatible while the Gus was around. And I think by the time that I had a properly good, actual, real, creative sound card, the wind was out of the sails of the Gus, and the, 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 a Sound Blaster was the one to get. Um, since then, though, I have learned how good it really was. Um, and I keep seeing people mentioning it in, the, in terms of the Amiga, in terms of demos, and I think it was the demo scene card of choice. So I have this feeling that maybe Amiga people who moved to the PC got into the Gus because of how good it was for uh, samples and synth, etc. Uh, I've asked uh, producer Duncan to add a link to the second reality PC demo in, in, on, the, on the Gus as well. It's from 1993, I think. So 
as you know, though, I do love my DOS PCs and I have several and I have a spare Pi 3 now that I've got the official MT32 Pi, which uses the 02W. So I've got the Pi 3 left over. So maybe that's what I need for my DOS machine. And as for being the ultimate DOS sound card, which is what it was submitted as, I don't think it is. It's absolutely not the ultimate uh, DOS sound card. What I'd love to see with you've got your Pi MT32, um, I'd love to see an option to maybe just press a button and switch it from MT32 to ultrasound, so you can switch between these projects Ooh, uh, and then use one device. Um, I mean, there will be situations where you want to use both at the mm. same time, I'm sure, but it would I, be nice, wouldn't it? I'm not sure you can because the, the Pi MT32 works through MIDI. And the Gus didn't. The Gus was an actual sound card. Oh, I get that. I get that. What I mean is to press a button to just switch the whole Pi into the different sound card emulator. Okay. So, you're no, so you can use one device for yeah. you know multiple hardware emulations. Yeah. 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 That'd be cool. Um, yeah, that would be cool. Um, so the ultimate DOS sound card. I don't, I don't think so. I, I'll keep my Orpheus, my Orpheus until something better comes along. I think the Sound Blaster is more compatible, and I think the Gus support. It was there for a while and then it just faded away, even though it was maybe it was a Betamax of uh, sound cards, slightly better than the, the Sound Blaster, but it didn't quite catch on. Now, Chris, what about you? Did you did you have one or know anyone that had one? Um, no, I didn't. And it's like uh, discussions about the Roland um, uh, stuff. You know, it's not until recently that I've realized what I was missing out on. And again, I've mentioned it before, I felt ripped off when I jumped from the Amiga to PC, initially just with the internal speaker. Of course, you would feel ripped off with that. But even when I got my Sound Blaster Pro, it didn't sound quite right to me, you know, coming from Paula. Um, and I think one of the ones that opened my eyes, one of the videos, sorry, that opened my eyes to what the, the Gus was capable of was was by LGR. Um, and it was about a similar project to this one. So that was the Argus. Uh, and that's a, a clone of the original using an AMD Interwave chip um and um when you watch that video and he's also done a video on the original gus as well um you do hear those kind of amiga-ish tones as i would put it it does sound a lot more familiar to an amiga user than any of the other pc sound cards um so the one that, that uh, um lgr mentions the r gus that's a hundred canadian dollars though and that's just the pcb with the amd interwave um chip mounted on it you have to mm -hmm. fully populate the card yourself so hmm. yeah a bit of a price when you say that it's got those Amiga-ish tones, do you think that's something to do with the hardware or do you just think it's because Amiga people liked to use that in the demo scene and so they carried their sound <laughs> across with them? I think probably the latter, actually, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, definitely. I, I don't know, even some of the music that um, LGL was playing, I can't even remember off the top of my head what games he trialed, but it just had that sort of familiar deepness to the tones, whereas the Sound Blaster... Um, excuse my French, but it sounds a bit farty in some ways, especially <laughs> things like percussion instruments, the hi-hats and stuff sound quite wet, um, for want of a better term, compared to what I was used to from the Amiga. So, yeah, just a, a richer sound. Yeah. I, I think, a little before we get a correction, um, I think the um, the Argus card isn't based on the original uh, Gravis also said, I think it's in one of the, one of the later cards from Gravis rather oh, than the okay. original. Yeah, I think I'm not. I'm not entirely certain about this, but I'm. I've got a feeling it's not quite the original one. 
Right. Mm. So, and we also need to differentiate as well between you know whether the music was being done on the OPL on the Sound Blaster or whether it was using digital samples um, and and the way the Gus was working. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to pick apart that we could be corrected on with this story. I'm being I'm being extra cautious after our correction <laughs> this week on the MN Drive. <laughs> well, we'll still get the bruises. <laughs> We've yeah. still got the bruises. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, and it's all on me. Uh, but I, I do think it's funny that it's nearly 30 years later that I'm finally finding out what PC games. Um, should have sounded like, and and what the other options were on the, you know, when you installed a game like you've already mentioned, and you had those other options, what they would have actually done had I had those options available to me. But I want to raise a question: here. Are the boxes to blame? Because I've got three boxes here, um, and I'll only dig out one. But I'll dig out X Wing first of all. The glasses are on. The glasses are on because I can't. Chris. When did when did these fonts get smaller? These these boxes have shrunk <laughs> in the wash. Put your glasses on, dear. Um, but <laughs> All it says under SoundCloud, so this one actually does say, so this is X-Wing, original X-Wing. It does say Sound Blaster, AdLib, Roland, and Pro Audio, um, and that's all. Uh, oh, Spectrum Incompatible and General MIDI supported. Both the other two examples I've got here, though, so that's F-22, Dominance Fighter, only mentions Sound Blaster, as does my Duke Nukem Kiloton collection. Look at that. Bit of a munted oh. box, needs some restoration, but anyway. Um, and all that mentions is Sound Blaster or 100% compatible. And from my memory, that became the norm. You know, you looked on a box and all it would say would be Sound Blaster or 100% compatible. So is that part of the problem, why we didn't choose other cards? I guess, yeah, I guess it depends on the era. Before that, it would have said AdLib. I mean, they would have mm. sometimes said uh, support Disney Sound Source. Did you ever use one of those? <laughs> Games like Stunt Island supported that. Um, I'm sure there was a degree in some instances where um, creative would have been paying people to slap stickers on their boxes and say, you know, Sound Blaster recommended and things like that. But, you know, it, it, had, it did legit become the standard. So the majority of boxes would have just said, we support that because it's the standard. Um, yeah, I personally didn't know anyone with an ultrasound back in the day. Um, it was, like you said, just an option in the install menus. And I didn't get to hear one probably until YouTube came along and people started sharing these things. And I was able to look one up and have a listen. And um, this project at the moment, it's very much a work in progress. So as I say, it's got the ribbon cable. It's got pins exposed so that Ian can um, tap into it. Uh, with his with his scope and see what's going on and diagnose problems. What I'd love to see this evolve into, hopefully, would be a, a full-blown ISA card that you just slot your Pi into, so it's one hard card rather than ribbon cables, and you just stick it in a PC. I'd love to see that. Um, and again, as I mentioned earlier, it would be nice to have the option to switch that to different sound cards as more and more people um, perhaps you know copy this and, and, and emulate other sound cards, even if it's just a basic but authentic sound blaster. How can it be authentic? It's emulated. You know what I'm saying? As authentic as possible to the machine, sound blaster emulated by a Pi, that would be a great option as well. Dave? I've just had a thought. It was Hoffman that submitted this, and Hoffman's right into his demo music and so on. So right is that him. why he's interested in the Gus? Oh, highly likely. Yeah, that's mm, probably yeah. why he's raised it. Yeah. So, we'll have to get him on the show one day. Would he, <laughs> would he come on? It, 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 I know I he likes can to only ask. We can only Saturday ask. morning cereal, and he he said, "Was it? Who was he called? <laughs> Someone and Gordon the Gopher. Gordon the Two Gopher. people. Trevor Simon and Jordan the Gopher. Now, who yeah. is Gordon the Who's Gopher? Gordon? Oh, is that Who's who Gordon we are? the Gopher? Yeah, I don't think we'd want to know the answer to that. <laughs> oh, swing your pants! Isn't that what they used to sing? Swing your pants. 
Trevor and Simon. <laughs> Do you not remember that song? I'll just move on. <laughs> they only sang it to me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I'm following this project with a, a lot of excitement. Um, thank you to Hoffman for submitting the story. Links are all in the show notes, or you can come and see the story as posted at uh, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro, where you can also submit your own stories if you'd like us to discuss them, upvote the ones that you're interested in, and downvote the ones that you're not. Back in the distant past, there was a ZX81 game so scary, so terrifying, so horrific in its tension that some gamers profess to be mentally scarred to this day, forever running, forever taking corner after corner, forever lost, forever fearful that something that looked like an early monochrome rendition of Barney the Dinosaur was going to get them. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Will the nightmare never end? Well, the nightmare was, of course, 3D monster maze, um, and it would seem that the nightmare has only just begun because, thanks to an indie developer called Steve Smith, 3D monster maze now plunges you into VR. Yep, you can play it on your PC VR setup from your browser, and uh, Steve developed it using the Quest 2. Now, you're probably expecting some modern recreation with up-to-date textures and graphics, But that's not what this is. And personally, this is what I love about Steve's work. Aside from the use of a torch and some slight lighting effects, he's kept everything as simplistic uh, as the original. And it kind of looks like the original as well. It just happens to be in VR. So what do you guys think? Do you dare go into the maze? Oh, I dare go into the maze every week, Chris, because (laughs) I have a ZX81 and I have this game specifically set up for people to come and play. But the first challenge to playing it when they come to the cave is loading it. It's the one machine that's not using SD cards or anything like that. They have to follow the instructions to use the horrible keyboard to type load, speech mark, speech mark, rewind the tape, wait for it to load, hope it loads because, you know, two out of three times it doesn't actually load. And then try and play it without wobbling the RAM pack. Um, the number of times I've walked over there as well, and people have pressed something. I don't know what they'd press, but they pressed something that makes the basic code, because I think this is coded in basic. Um, certainly looks like it. it. just appears all down the screen. So they somehow break out of the game, and all the, <laughs> the code is over the screen. And then they've got to rewind it, and they've got to make, wait the four minutes for it to load again. So um, it's all part of the experience. But it, when it's working, it is amazing how it does capture that feeling of suspense. It does truly deserve the title that it has of, of being the first 3D suspense horror game because there is a lot of suspense in there just knowing that rex is out there laying in wait for you and (laughs) every move you know every corner he might be around the next corner it it's a great game to play in a darkened room late at night and um i couldn't actually run the game in the browser i tried to try to run this and it said your browser doesn't support vr and it's no surprise i don't have my vr headset here so um there's probably a plug-in or something that's needed or a different browser with support for it so I looked it up and had a watch on YouTube. And as he said, it's a very simple looking game. He's captured the essence of the original game. And for all its simplicity, it does still maintain that feeling of suspense. Just watching it on YouTube. I wasn't playing it, but I was still worried about Rex coming around the corner <laughs> watching it. It is a game that is in true 3D, of course. You've got your VR headset on. You can look around. The walls are all just a basic checkerboard pattern. That's it. Just one texture for every wall. The lights are dim within the game. And then you wave your torch around and it lights up those bits of the wall. And that's it. You're just wandering around um, a maze that all looks the same. But um, 
Yeah, yeah. It all looks the same, and, and Rex is there somewhere in your wave you need to talk to you about, and that's it. That's all there is to it, and it works. <laughs> At least it works as a viewer. Dave, do you feel the same as me? Yeah, I think so. I think it's the, it, 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 I think if he hadn't kept with that, it would have been nothing. If you know what I mean, if he hadn't kept with the, the basic idea of the, the basic graphics and so on, it, it would have been just another another basic VR game. Um, now, I saw the box for this when I visited the cave, um, the one you mentioned you've got in the exhibition, and it's one of the most memorable things that I saw when I visited. There's this era of game boxes before they were done on computers, and this is a hand-drawn, simple line one, and it's nothing like the other take games you might see. It really is something to see. I don't know if it, if it's on one of the shelves behind you, Neil. Can you reach and get it on the shop <laughs> shelf? I can't, I can't quite reach, Dave. No. <laughs> maybe maybe Duncan can add a couple of snaps of it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, the, the, bo- the, the, the box art for it is, is something it's, it's from a different era yeah it's all re- it's very brown brown with brown line art on it as i remember and um, yeah i'll try and get some shots for the show uh, and there are other games which are done in the same style so there were a series of games and they all look lovely together and very brown nice yeah well steve's done some other games actually which are quite interesting so the, the first one i played of of his work was a first person so not vr but a first person rendition of saboteur um, that you can play on your pc and saboteur is one of my favorite spectrum games so that was really nice Oh, we used to have that at school um yeah it was on the bbc micro as well wasn't it, it must have been oh was it i don't remember that or maybe we played it on, on the, the archimedes with the spectrum emulator but we certainly oh, okay. played it at school and yeah. i always remember how cool that game was because you came flying in on a on a rapid rib boat don't you that's right and yeah. then and then you're, you're like a ninja that climbs out into the is it an oil rig or something like that yeah but, um, something, a, a evil something like that. yeah <laughs> it was cool it was just a cool game it was you felt like a ninja as much as you could in 8-bit yeah <laughs> it was fantastic and in fact actually you can download they re-released it for ps4 and again it's just the original graphics um or you can switch between spectrum and c64 on the ps4 version which is quite nice uh but they've updated the sound but anyway we're getting off track um so the the spectrum version what steve's done is he's just done for the pc taken the spectrum graphics and he was actually given the original map data by clive townsend for the project so it's exactly the same style of textures, exactly the same map. Um, items, most of the items and enemies are placed in roughly the, the exactly the right spots throughout the game. But you're doing it from first person rather than a 2D sideways view, which is quite trippy to actually sort of be leaping into a game that you played back in the day. It's really nice. Um, and I just love the the sort of purist approach that he's that he's got in in terms of keeping the look and feel of the original, but throwing a modern twist in form in the form of three D with his latest projects, full VR. Um, and they're, they're kind of casual projects, so yeah, he is open to sort of not criticism, but you know, just sort of comments. But he he might not make any changes to any of his projects. He's well, as far as I'm concerned, it's done and move on to the next one. It's just a nice, relaxed sort of approach. He's just having fun, basically. Um, and uh, he's he's done lots of projects actually. Uh, he's done the Sentinel VR. He's done Exelon in 3D, and now also in VR. He's done Laser Squad in 3D, so first person. Uh, Laser Squad 3D, the Assassins. That one's called Death Chase VR, and he's also done multiplayer versions of games that were originally single player so he's done a multiplayer version of manic minor and jetpack for example and there's heaps more um so yeah it's a really interesting little project um i don't know what other 8-bit era games would you like to see somebody like steve sort of give this kind of treatment to what do you guys think i've only heard about this now i've got a barely used vr headset 
I hardly ever touch it. But I loved the Sentinel on my CPC. It's a fantastic game. Jeff Cramming game, um, who did stunt car race. He did loads of racing games and the Sentinel. Um, and not many, many people talk about the Sentinels, but a cracking game. Um, sort of a puzzle game, uh, but it's in 3D, so that would be great. Exelon was kind of cool in the CPC, and Laser Squad are one of my favourite games ever. And please, Julian Gollop, come on for a tea break with Neil. Um, I, I'm definitely, honestly, promise I'm going to look into these. They'll go on a long list of things I need to do. I'm not as much interested in the 3D Monster Maze. Probably won't play that as I am with Sentinel, Laser Squad, and Exelon. As for what I'd like is an 8-bit VR game, hang on a minute. What you're doing here is what we did in the 90s. Every franchise must turn 3Ds. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> but if we was to pick one, Driller, Darkseid, Castlemaster, those would be great in VR. Yeah, and they're kind of built for it, really. That would be yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the uh, those are the obvious choices, I guess, because they are three D yeah. and and yeah. when you played them back in the day, you know, you always filled in the gaps with your imagination yeah. and mm. yeah. to, to go full VR. Wow, it would be amazing. I'm going to cheat slightly with my choice. I'm going to go with the TV show Nightmare because there was an eight bit version of Nightmare. Um, now, I'd love to see this in VR, but somebody did actually try to do it back in I think it was 2004. 2010 sometime around that period someone tried to make a vr version of nightmare um and they released kind of a pilot for it uh so it, it was funded by a national lottery grant and i think it was designed to be a tv show um i'm just doing a little bit of searching here to find out some more information about it so i think they were trying to bring the tv show into the 21st century and make it all texture mapped sort of um vr rather than using the green screen and having to edit everything much further down the line and make it all sort of render it afterwards to make it work um, and then not have live actors. So there would be rendered people in there. Huh. Um, so it looks like that didn't go anywhere, but I'd love to see that become an actual game, which is a bit of an odd one because in Nightmare, the person who was actually wearing the helmet couldn't see anything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm not, I haven't got as far as figuring out how that would work. You put your VR headset on and it just acts as a blindfold. Is that... <laughs> the, the reason why they wore the dog. helmet is so they couldn't see they were they were in a TV studio. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so if you put your VR thing on, then instead of being blind and three people having to tell you what you see, um, you, the VR headset does it all for you. So you then become all four of them. I don't know. Um, Maybe there's like a multiplayer. Maybe there's a balance where uh, the the people with VR headsets can be like the kids on the side looking into the room. And if you're not lucky enough to have a VR headset, you're just on a screen clicking on things, following the instructions or something. I don't know. I don't. Spellcasting VR. What, what was that TV? You know where I'm going. My mind's going now. I'm thinking the reverse, where the person in VR can see more than the person, the people that aren't in VR. But that was done. That was a game show with um, Craig Charles hosting. Oh and yeah, the name of it is gone. I can't remember the name of it. And he used to shout, did he shout a wooger in that one? Yes, he um, a wooger all the time. Cyberzone. That's it, yes. Cyberzone, yeah. Yes. That was awful. Didn't That's available time. to view on YouTube in all its glory. <laughs> oh, anyway. Anyway, look, my choice for this, I think, if you're going to VR or even just FPS an 8-bit game, a tick attack, I think that would be great. I'd love that, mm -hmm. running around and, the, yeah, that'd be fantastic picking up all the things and bouncing my axe off walls. I'd just like to say, I'd, I'm, I've taken back my entire idea of VR Nightmare. I think it's an awful idea, and I shouldn't <laughs> have opened my mouth. <laughs> 
So you're back on your driller and castle master then. <laughs> yeah, and and total eclipse. <laughs> Don't forget total yeah. eclipse. Yeah, and dark I've side. Got that total eclipse. I haven't opened it yet. Sealed Amstrad this version, yeah. ready to get opened. Oh, what about an engine that lets you? Because obviously you had the Freescape. Um, you had it in the form of Virtual Studio for PC and 3D construction kit for the Amiga. If you yeah. could build an engine that would let you export your games that you built in that into VR, that yes, I want that. <laughs> That's a thing that, that should exist. So, anyway, Rich, your my, game Minecraft, is going to be delayed. It? It's just Minecraft. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, true, yeah. <laughs> anyway, we could go on that forever. So thanks to Alex McChessers, sure, um, for sharing Steve's latest work in the subreddit. But also I just want to say, Steve, you know how much I loved your 3D rendition of, or your first-person rendition of Saboteur. And I have been watching your VR projects with Imchess. I just don't yet have the kit to play them. Um, but I really do love your approach, so keep it up. When does preservation become hoarding? Submitted by Control Alt Reese to the subreddit, and it's a story about himself. So Control Alt Reese <laughs> is. Um, Reese wouldn't submit a, a link to one of his own videos, would he? He claims <laughs> it's not for self promotion, and, and I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Reese visited the retro computing museum in leicester so rcm not rmc rcm it's an interesting video to watch there's funny enough amazing vr machines there he uh, from decades ago with dinosaurs and so on and he says the vr machines and he shows the vr machines they look great they look like proper a good experience he says it's the best vr experience he's had he talks to to andy the guy who started it and also to dean um, there's a staggering software archive there. I think Andy said 40,000 titles. It's incredible. And he also talks to Dean, who takes him to the warehouse storage area, and that's where that's what sparked all this off. The warehouse area is packed full of micros. There's loads in there. There's some lovely rare machines, but there's also some of the more common ones. And everything is pretty neatly stored. So I've, I've heard it called, it's like another reset. It's not, it really isn't. It's all, it's all very neatly stored. It's properly organized. Um, and they're going through the process of putting everything into an inventory, etc. But they're racks and racks full of Spectrum Plus 2s, Atari 520 SDFMs, Amiga 500s, etc. Way more than they could ever conceivably, conceivably, we'll leave that in, I'll put my teeth back in, ever use. And Reese was surprised when the video started picking up comments like, this stuff shouldn't be sat gathering dust in a warehouse. And oh, that's crazy, it's like a British computer reset. And it's a shame so much kit is simply stored in a warehouse and not a ha not in the hands of other collectors who would give them the love they deserve. Maybe it's better in the warehouse if that's going to happen to it. Um, if you have a warehouse that takes so much stuff out of circulation, does that then help drive the cost of retro kit up? And how many of each system does a museum need? This just seems like hoarding. Most of these systems will be better off in the homes of enthusiasts. And it's something that Dean, who's the volunteer who's helping to catalogue all this and organise this stuff, partially addresses to Reese as they're going through the walk around. Dean says, but the idea is that we will try to get all this stuff working and then we'll use it for something. It's just time. So he's talking about a lack of time to get it all done. And Reese himself does reply to the comments to try and clarify. He says, the bulk of the stuff in the storage units and game library. I would do Reese's voice, but he doesn't really have an accent. Um, and the game library has been donated by well-meaning members of the public 
who didn't know what else to do with it. The old, if you don't take this, it's going down the dump routine, which I'm sure we've all come across at some point or other. This ranges from individual items to entire collections and has been going on since 2008, hence they've managed to amass so much. Sadly, as a charity um, staffed by volunteers, the museum just hasn't got the resources until recently to get it all catalogued, tested, cleaned up and dealt with. But as alluded to a few times in the video, this is now starting to happen with an effort led by Dean, who is a recent recruit. So that's what Reese has said about it. And he's got a good point about 2008. In 2008, a Spectrum Plus 2, a, a 520 SDFM and an Amiga 500 wasn't worth anything. I mean, it, it was, you might, you might get a fiver for it, a car boot sale, but they really weren't worth anything. So that's why they were handed in as, as junk. And you can understand why they, why the would take them rather than say, no, take it to the dump. Um, so it looks as if I don't think they intended to be in a warehouse, to have a warehouse, and to be paying for be paying for storage with all this stuff. But it's the position they're in now. Neil, this must be a problem that you're faced with. How do you deal with it? Um, yeah, I mean, the immediate thing I started thinking about when you were reading this, uh, sorry, telling this story, because we don't have notes at all. You weren't reading anything. Um, I'll start <laughs> that again. <laughs> yeah, just throw me under the bus. <laughs> Yeah, the immediate thing I was thinking about when you were um, telling us this story was that exact line of, do you want this or it's going down the tip? Nine out of 10 times when I get contacted and asked if I want a donation, that's the line that comes to me. You know, we've got this stuff. It's only going to go down the tip if you don't take it. So it, it puts you really in the position of deciding the fate of that bit of kit, whether you really want it or not. The last thing you want to see is it go down the tip. So that's why a lot of stuff does come my way. And of course... Um, it would have come their way in the, in, in the same manner. This is not a problem that's exclusive to RCM. I've seen it at every computer museum that's ever let me see behind the scenes. You know, you've got very kind people making donations of kit that you accept in good faith and you give them a promise that you'll give it a good home. And you have to balance that, as you've spoken about, with the volunteers and the resources that you have available to inventory it, to service them, to safely store the kit, to um, cover the cost of insuring it in case anything bad, you know, happens and all of that stuff. Um, and then you need to be able to locate it and you need to be able to put it into service if it needs to be used by the public. Um, and this has all been done on a very small or zero budget at all. Everyone is doing this in good faith uh, to their best of their ability. Of course, if, if we, um, I, I, by that, I mean myself and, and, and other museums as well, if, if they had the budget for, of the British Museum, for example, we'd have robotic shelves zooming around and up and down from the ceiling. We'd have humidity controlled rooms. We'd have full-time technicians servicing everything, but that's just not going to ha happen. So each mu museum has to find its own balance. I think um, how many spares you need is determined by how many people you have to service them, how much space you have, how hands-on your museum is and how much wear and tear this kit is going to get. So you have to balance that all up as to how many you think you might need. So there's no real answer to this question other than so long as the items are accepted in good faith and stored to the best of our abilities, then that's fine by me. And it's also a good idea, um, something that we do is we use a donations form, which makes it clear that it's your intention to make good use of the machine, um, whether it be to put it on display or put it in the hands-on area. But uh, circumstances may change. And if it's better else, used elsewhere, you might move it on to another museum by way of um, a free gift or an exchange, a swap for something else. Or you might even sell it to raise funds, to use those funds 
for something else, building maintenance or whatever else you need for the museum. So um, I think it's important that you make sure you make that clear at the point that something's donated. Um, of course, not to accept it with a view to immediately selling it and going, oh, that's worth a lot of money. I'll have it. And then sticking it straight on eBay. That's not on at all. Um, but if you can think you can make you good use of it, then, then great. And if circumstances change, then so be it. And if you want to take that a step further, um, museums really need to work together to request, swap and share machines that are otherwise hidden away in storage so that the public can get to see them. Because that's the point of all this is, is sharing them with other people. And I agree, if they're going to be stuck in a warehouse for 10 years, never to be seen, then you need to start thinking about what's the point of you having this? You know, why have, why have you got this? Um, and a way around that could be even to say, well, we're going to open up our archives. If there are any academics that want to have access to this, it's all inventoried and they know where they can find it. And, you know, if one person comes along in five years because they want to see that specific model with that specific serial number and something quirky about it, then great. That's the job of a museum. You're doing a good job. Um, there's so much to balance, isn't there? And as I say, there's no, there's no real answer to it. Um, something we're trying to do is we're trying to have our first retro tech car boot sale um on the 3rd of july at the cave so we're, we're um, offering tables um to be set up outside um the cave so that we can move on some stuff that we're never going to use but also other people we've invited swindon museum well we should totally invite lester too to just bring a table and to try and get some of that kit that they know they don't need um that they know they'll never use back out there into the community for people that do want it but it does still beg the question if it doesn't sell is it just going to go down the tip? <laughs> Where do you draw the line? You know, when does something become worthless? I don't know. But that's a little thing that we're going to try and do. Whether or not it happens is really down to whether we sell enough tables and there's enough interest shown. It might be a terrible idea, but it's just one of those things that we're trying as a new uh, museum. We're just throwing things at the wall, really, and seeing what sticks. And that's one of them. So we'll see if it happens. Yeah. Dave? Chris? <laughs> I was just. I think it's a terrible idea, Neil, and you should delay it for at least two weeks. Oh, until, until you come and visit. <laughs> How are you going to get all that back in your suitcase? Um, on the subject of hoarding, um, hoarding. This is a definition. Hoarding disorder is a persistent difficulty discarding or parting with possessions because of a perceived need to save them. A person with hoarding disorder experiences distress at the thought of getting rid of the items. Mm. Excessive accumulation of items, regardless of actual value, occurs. And I've noticed some uncomfortable things in that definition about myself. <laughs> I want to defend myself in two ways. First of all, there's the thing we keep bringing up, which is FOMO, fear of missing out. If I don't buy that Atari ST monitor switch on eBay now, will I ever see one again? That happens all the time with retro stuff. You think, am I going to see it? Am I going to get another chance? Will I regret this? That's why you buy a lot of stuff. And the secondly, there's time. I've got a couple of huge crates of box games that are not on my shelves. They're not going to go in the shelves I need to sell. But I need to set up an area to really take clear pictures and to make proper accurate listings, etc. Chris, do you have a hoarding problem? I definitely don't, no. Um, and... I tend to pass stuff on as well if I have got a double up. So somebody donated a heap of games, actually sent them all the way to me from the UK. Most of them I wanted to keep. Some were double ups, but they had bits that my current versions didn't have. 
So I would like, for example, the Lotus 3 poster. So obviously I've kept that and then passed on the remains of a double up to somebody else, again, for free. And I think that's fair enough. Um, But um, I did have the same thoughts. When I watched um, Reese's video, I actually had the same thoughts pass through my head. But I'm trying to practice my new habit on social media, which is to sit on my hands. You know, not everybody needs to see my opinion out in the world. And sometimes it's best kept to myself. But it was a fleeting thought of, Flipping egg. They've got how many Amigas? Um, and but at the end of the day, you know, yes, you have spares. So from my own personal collection, I think I've only got one. What I would call spare. You might just be able to see it on the shelf behind me. Maybe not um, an Amiga five hundred poking out. But actually, that's not even a spare A five hundred. That's literally a case with a semi-functional keyboard. So it's just bits. It's it's not even a spare machine. And that would be the only thing that I would count as my my only double up. Um, but seeing those rows and rows of STs and Amigas in in the footage of, uh, on Reese's video, again, it raises the question: well, Are they even all double ups? They might be variations, you know, in terms of what's inside the machine. What version motherboard is it? A rare motherboard. So, I mean, museums do have um, a role to play in, I guess, preserving different versions within one model uh, and making sure we've got copies of all of those as well, especially where the chipsets change slightly. So, you know, our perception may be, well, that's a heap of machines that'd be better. In. What we really mean when we see something like that is give them to me. That's If we're honest, if people that are making those comments are honest, that's what they mean is what's it doing there on the shelf? Give it to me because I don't have one of those. I think that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, what do you reckon? Um, I've got a spare three or four STs. Hmm. I've got the same number of CPCs and Spectrums, maybe a couple of dozen PC motherboards, loads of sticks of RAM, loads of old graphics cards, etc. I've got loads and loads of stuff, and I need to sell it. Hmm. And it's not even just about the money. I mean, partly it's about the money because I've kind of banked on selling these things. I bought like a job lot to get one or two items from it, thinking, well, I'll sell what, what I don't need back in eBay again. But it's the time. Uh, I, I, I just don't have enough time. And I'll do whatever takes my fancy at that point. So I'll be fixing up that XP machine rather than cleaning things up and getting them on eBay. So if I had all the time in the world, I would have that all dealt with. And I think that's where RCM are. I think if they had all the time in the world, they would deal with it. But there's there's a whole lot of other things they do. Um, so is that the best use of their time? Are, are, they, are they there just to, to deal with these old machines and get them back out of people? No, it's not. It's not all they do. Hmm. They mentioned in their video that they need to hit about £40,000 a year of income to um, keep the place going. Hmm. And when you're doing that with volunteers and on a a skeleton crew, I guess, all of those resources have to go to uh, entertaining the public, getting them through the door, marketing the place, uh, making sure the systems that are out are running and make uh, just simple things like hoovering and cleaning and and, making it a viable visitor attraction. And then it's a nicety above and beyond that to be able to spend time on the inventory and the servicing and the maintenance over in the warehouse. It's such a tough balance um, to, to be able to give people access to these machines and let them have a good day out while trying to tickle the boxes behind the scenes of those other things. It's hard work. It's hard work. And they, they do a good job of it on balance. 
That's so true. Um, and I, I do think we need to also just mention the fact that <laughs> there was more than just the the scenes of hoarding or what we some people perceive as hoarding on these videos by Reese. They were both two really good videos. So he did one on his main channel, one on his extras channel, um, and a really nice look at uh, the museum. So not just the, the behind the scenes where all the stuff is stored, yeah. but also the hands-on exhibit part. And it looks like a really cool place to visit. Um, and then he, on his uh, extras channel, he did a um, an interview um as well so really cool information about what those guys are doing there and just to, to stress something as well we, we keep mentioning the word hoarding and it might give you impressions of what you saw at computer reset miscellaneous piles heaped stuff toppling over it's not like that at all it's, it's it's all fairly organized and proper racking and so on so that's not the impression we want to create about uh, what they've got there uh, but i am i'm sympathetic i, I think rcm uh, is is where perhaps i am with my stuff i will get to it they just don't have time they accept donations made in good faith and they just don't have the time to deal with it so i'm very sympathetic uh, and um I need to have, I've got micros that I need to move on, but I think RCM do need to move their stuff on. So if you're in the Leicester area and you have a little time that you can give them, then perhaps you could help out and help them deal with the massive pile they've got and get it all sorted out. It's time now for your answers to last week's community question of the week. And I think this might be the most popular community question of the week we've ever put out there. So we will likely read out a few more responses than normal. Just to remind you, the question was, um, it read as follows. I'm sure we've all loaded a game with no intention of playing it at all. We just wanted to hear our favorite theme tune one more time. So quite simply, what is your favorite video game tune? And as an aside, also, what is your favorite video game tune cover? It doesn't have to be the same tune. It could be two different tunes. Uh, the example we gave last week was Banjo Guy Ollie, who covered the Lotus Turbo Challenge music so wonderfully. Brilliant. Um, yeah, yeah. And Dave, you've got some of yours that you've listed here, haven't you? No. No. That's Duncan's. I think there's a Duncan's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I see a list of games, so I'll read them out on Duncan's behalf. Um, so some of Duncan's favorite music is Thundercats. Um, I don't know what system that's on. Maybe the uh, it's on the CBC. And the, the oh, ST's got the same okay. music. It's really, it's really good music for it. And it's, um, um, is it based on the the theme tune itself? No, not at all. Absolutely is it the same as the like Amiga it. version? Probably. It was a pretty lazy port to the Amiga. I don't know if it was or not. Because I hated the music on the Amiga version. Okay, well, I'll read out the rest of this game. So you had Thundercats, Mega Apocalypse, H A T E. Glider Rider, he said, this could be the first example of adaptive music. The music changed when you took to the air. Ultima Six in the bin. Batman the movie. Dizzy Down the Rapids is a very jolly tune. And all of these were from the CPC, not on the C64. So it was the C64 on the AY chip. Um, and then on the Amiga, he says, Alien Breed, Project X, First Samurai, Turrican 2, No Second Prize. And I recommend you look up No Second Prize because yeah, that's an absolute banger, not on the ST. Uh, Duncan says, Faster. to name just a few <laughs> from the mighty Amiga. We're not talking about frame rates. We're talking about music, Dave. <laughs> and then he says mirror's edge soundtrack from the playstation 3 was unique and perfect for the game so those are duncan's picks let's head over to the uh the question on the subreddit now and i'll read the the first answer out from our friend paul aka hermsky he says outrun i mean there was always going to be outrun in the answers wasn't there it had to be there Definitely. outrun do i need to say any more it just takes me back to the good old days when arcades were arcades and not kids tickets collecting rooms there you go 
No. Do we have an outrun favourite? I'm going to go with Magical Sound Shower. You're Splash wrong. Wave. It's Splash Wave. Ah, Splash Wave is a better one. Splash Wave, Dave. High five. Bang. <laughs> okay. I also have a real soft spot for the high score music. I think it's called the Final Wave. I like. It's that all music. good though. It all, it all. It's all good though. I mean, the whole the whole thing adds to these beings. Yeah. Hmm. There's no bad ones. Chris, um, what's the next one? Uh, by Mega Ste, who says Atari ST Thrust by Rob Hubbard. Oh, so, and he also says too. the C64 version is pretty neat as well. So do look at his answer on the subreddit because he's posted links to all of them. So it's cool. And the remix. Yep. Um, there's also a reply from JP that I noticed in that that says, I can't believe they did a whole segment without mentioning Rob Hubbard. Mm, I still listen to the Whizball theme as a standalone piece of music now. I mean, we did talk about really good music on the 8-bit and 16-bits and that's Rob Hubbard. <laughs> so we kind of mentioned it, but not by yeah. name. You can't beat a bit of the Whizball high score music. Love that. It's like he the did so many good pieces. Ever in a game. It's brilliant. I can't hear it now. I'm gonna, I'll look it up after. Yeah. Ba, 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 that one. For some reason, that's that help not helping. Rob Hubbard did it better. <laughs> <laughs> Next answer is from Dave Dev Retro. He says, back in the day, I made a mixtape of Amiga music, which I loved. From memory, it included Gods, Magic Pockets, Megalomania, Xenon 2, First Samurai, Super Stardust, Super Frog, Chaos Engine. I think I give my single vote award to Super Stardust, mm -hmm. all versions, an absolutely banging soundtrack. He says, my all-time favourite composer was the late, great Richard Joseph, a true legend gone too soon. Alistair Brimble comes in a close second. Nice. And as this is so popular, we'll do three more answers as well. So the next one is from uh, our good friend Mean Machine Dean. Hello, Dean. He says, for me, it has to be Bionic Commando. He says the game has a very special place in my gaming history, and the music is one of the very reasons I adore the game on the NES. So that's the version he's gone for. Nice. Next one's by Flippin' Eck Tucker. Fantastic name. Uh, for me, video game music doesn't get any better than Magical Sound Shower. Oh, we're back on Outrun. Uh, this might be influenced <laughs> by two things. The music being blasted into my 15-year-old ears by the speakers in the back of the seat. Uh, and also because Outrun was the first arcade game I ever completed. Nice. I even got a, a pad on the shoulder from the guy who ran the arcade I was in. Fantastic. Marble Badness is a close second for its sheer uniqueness. There we go. And the last one we'll read out is from Moycott. Um, left field, but the Peter Gunn theme from the game Spy Hunter. Oh, yes. It's a TV theme in 1958 used in Blue Brothers in 1980 and on the game released in 1983. Uh, game was line ball okay, but the theme made me put in 20C after 20C at the arcade. There's a 2001 rework of the theme for an updated game, which is okay. 20 cents, I'm guessing that is. 20 yeah, 20 I'm guessing cents. that's 20 cents. Do you get 20 cents? The remix yeah, is quarters fantastic. Or 25 cents. Oh, What's yeah. 20 cents? Where do you get 20 cents? Is that Australia? That's a good point, because it would be quarters normally, wouldn't it? Yeah, God, that's what a 20 cents. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he's in Australia. I don't know. Yeah. Is that but what the, arcade the, game was the remix, when you went remix, there? I think was for the, um, <laughs> wasn't it for the PS2? The the new version of uh, Spy Hunter in 2001, was that for PS2? 
But it's a fantastic. I'm trying to think of the name of the band, but it's like a metal rendition. It's fantastic. Love it. How must the how must the Peter Gun tune, Chris? Because I've done my karaoke. Dum 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 da dum 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 da That's all you get. Da Oh, we're going to get a barbershop quartet going on there. We will not be getting a copyright straight for that. No. excellent well superb answers and there are a huge number more answers over on the subreddit so go and check them out um the subreddit is reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro where you will also find this week's community question of the week it's all about hoarding versus collecting i guess the question really is where where do you cross the line at what point does collecting become hoarding um as we've discussed, there's, there's there's no real definitive answer to this question. It's just nice to hear your opinions and your thoughts. Is it when you can't open the door to the room anymore? Is it when things start to smell a bit odd? Um, what is it? At what point does hoarding or does collecting become hoarding? As I say, reddit.com forward slash r forward slash this week in retro where you can participate in that. Also, do submit your news stories to the subreddit, upvote and downvote accordingly so that we can uh, pick ones out which are popular to discuss. And come and take part on the RMC Retro Discord server, which is discord.gg forward slash RMC Retro, where we have a dedicated this week in retro room. And you can come and chat with all the other listeners in there. And we hope to see you in there. Dave, Chris, thank you for hanging out again this week. And thank you for listening, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Goodbye. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC The Cave, Chris from 005 Agema, and Dave. It was produced by me, Duncan Styles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favourite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on the stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you enjoy our show and would like to support it, then please check out the link to our Patreon page in the show notes or description. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.